Thank you very much for letting me be here with you. I was with Antioch, I don't know, three or four years ago, I think, and I wasn't asked back, so I thought maybe you didn't like me. I'm really, I'm really grateful to be here with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 4. You, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. I'll be referring to this text periodically. I want to speak this morning about evangelism, and I, I need to do it um, by saying I do not have the gift of evangelism. I want to make that clear. I have it as a high value, as I think every Christian ought to. Somebody took the time to share with us, and we heard the gospel, whether we were children at home, whether it was a friend at school, somebody at work. And it seems to me if that had benefited us so much, we would at least want to step out in kind. And I'm grateful that God loved me and forgave me. And I've wanted other people to know about his love and forgiveness. And I have made a boatload of mistakes sharing Jesus. But I have not let that stop me. I have learned from those mistakes, and I want to share with you out of what I've learned. I've had pastors before say to me, well, Jerry, we, we really like it when and encourage the people in our church with the gift of evangelism to do it. I go, wow, I want to go speak at your church sometime so I can tell the people that don't have the gift of giving they don't have to give anymore. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to the church where only those with the gift of mercy are being kind and merciful to one another. That'd be a cold-hearted place. We're all supposed to exercise in all of these areas of spiritual maturity and development. Some people have a special aptitude for it, and others like me have to learn from their mistakes. So that's what I want to talk about. Okay, let's uh, uh, look at this passage of Scripture. We'll pray and we'll get into it. Let's start with verse 5. So Jesus came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Joseph's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Skip to verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. Verse 16. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I guess. <laughs> Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let us pray. Father, overwhelm us with your grace 
and goodness to us that it might so overflow from our life that naturally we would speak of these things to others. Put us in context where there are already people whose hearts are being prepared by you that we might be observant and see where the questing hearts are and speak the word of your love and forgiveness and lordship to them. I pray to that end you would use this morning in each of our lives. And Father, I know that what I offer to these precious people of yours are just crumbs. But your son took something not much more than crumbs when he took those five loaves and two fish from Andrew. So small for the 5,000 that were hungry, and yet he multiplied it and everyone left satisfied. I pray your Holy Spirit would do that again with the crumbs that I offer, that he would multiply it and that each person here would hear something that would speak specifically to his or her heart, prompting them to engage in the life that you've called them to, to make your son known to others. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I really believe God's at work in our world, and I don't think it's ever been easier to share Christ with other people than now. I asked a bunch of students at Wheaton, the statistics are bad in America. We're not good at sharing our faith. And I said, why do you think that is? And this one young woman uh, who was the chaplain, was student body chaplain at Wheaton, and she was on the women's um, softball team, so she said, I think it's we're afraid of what people will think of us. And it dawned on me in that moment, wow, if I'm afraid of what people will think of me if I share, then that means I'm more concerned about what they think of me than what Jesus who loves me thinks of me. And therefore I've drifted towards some sort of idolatry, I think. Now I don't want to say we shouldn't be concerned what people think about us because we don't want to be obnoxious when we do this. And there are a lot of people turned off to Jesus because they've been mistreated by people who were well-meaning but didn't do so well. Several years ago, we had Lauren Cunningham at Wheaton College. He was the founder of YWAM. And he said to us, after having preached at every country in the world, I think 212 countries, he had preached the gospel. Matter of fact, he said when he was in Saudi Arabia preaching in a house church in the home of one high Saudi official, that this guy said to Cunningham, this is just one of 5,000 churches I know of in Saudi Arabia, and those are the ones I know of. And Lauren Cunningham's comment was, Jesus is winning. The question is, do we want to be a part of that team? Super Bowl Sunday, it's always good to consider the team we're behind, and this is the one I think God wants us to be behind most. Our secular world suppresses religious faith. If you go to a movie, it's always the wacko who might be the Christian, or speak Bible verses, but they're as evil as all get out. The news media filters stuff out, and so on. And it's in that context, I've never met people more hungry to talk about spiritual things because there's no outlet for them any place else. And if Augustine's right, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee, my guess is that this is percolating in people's hearts and the opportunities for them to process are few. And if we Christians are attentive to these things, the conversations have never been easier. Like I say, God's at work in other places in the world. I've talked to four Muslims, former Muslims, who came to Jesus because Jesus came to them in dreams and visions and so on. I've talked to them myself. I know this is going on 
God can use anybody and he can use anything. He prefers to use us and the opportunities are all around us and we want to make the most of them. His work is missional. He loves us. He forgives us. He wants to enter into the chaos we've made of our lives and be Lord of our life and bring order out of chaos. And furthermore, in this whole missional process, he uses broken, goofy people to accomplish this missional endeavor. In fact, it's the only kind of people he has to work with, people like you and me. I, I always believe there's two kinds of people in the world, goofy people who know they're goofy, and, and goofy people who don't know they're goofy. And they're a bit on the dangerous side. I would like to go on to say, too, we each have been uniquely wired for this work, goofy as we are. Um, I have um, 13 grandchildren with two more on the way. Um, the, one, one, my one son, he's a pastor in Phoenix, his wife wanted to have four children in four years, get the childbearing stuff behind her and raise them all together. Well, it didn't work. She had four in three years. The last set were twins. Fraternal twins, a boy and a girl. Soren was born first. His sister, Briley, was born next. And the doctor, when Briley was born, looked at her and said she is anatomically two weeks younger than her brother. How's that happen? My daughter-in-law ovulated and became pregnant two weeks into her pregnancy. Against all odds, she ovulated again and became pregnant a second time. Very unusual. I thought to myself, God must really want Briley in this world. But you think about it, all the eggs a woman carries in her ovaries, all the sperm a man ejaculates when he makes love to his wife, that any sperm and egg get together is against all odds. Look around at the people in this room. Every one of you did something more significant than winning the lottery. You are here on purpose for a reason. God wanted you here. And he assigned you certain lines as a result. Anyone's birth occurs against all odds and you're here on purpose and you are wanted. Every once in a while I meet some kid, you know, and I'll say, where are you in the birth order? And they'll say, I was last born. I say, oh, what are the ages of your siblings? And I'll find out there's a big gap between them and the next youngest. And I'll go, that's interesting. And they'll say to me, often, yeah, I was unwanted. I was a surprise. And I say, not to God. He knew you were going to be here. He wanted you here. And Dante, who everybody knows the Divine Comedy, he wrote the Vita Nuova, and then 25 years later he writes the Divine Comedy. But between those two books, he wrote two books, the Demonarchia and the Combivo. In the Demonarchia, Dante makes this observation. Function precedes essence. Function precedes essence. The purpose God had for you preceded his creating you and giving you those qualities and attributes and characteristics that you have. If you go back to the creation account in Genesis 1, he makes light on day one, the function. He doesn't make the luminaries of things to emit light, the sun, moon, and stars, till day four. God has no new thoughts. There was never a moment in his mind where he didn't know that you would be. He's eternal. He always knew. And he had function for you, purposes for you. And he gave you what you needed to fulfill those purposes. So often we look around at other people and say, how come I'm not like that person? 
How come I'm, I'm not like this person? Boy, I'm glad I'm not like that person. And what ends up happening, rather than celebrate what God's done over there, we de-emphasize what he might be doing in us for purposes he had for us. It was the Victorian playwright Oscar Wilde who said, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. And I think we need to get to the place where we begin to say, Lord, I know your word has said, if all were eyes, where would the hearing be? If all were hands, where would the feet be? Help me to find my identity in you, so loved by you, so called by you, so purposed by you, that I would begin to have my eyes open for what you want me to do in this world that participates with your missional endeavors. Nothing in life will ever give you a greater sense of meaning, purpose, and significance than participation in God's work in the world. Yes. It says in Philemon 6, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. I don't want to take a whole lot of time on this because last time I was with you, that's a passage I spoke on. But I want to do some quick review before I go into some practical applications. A full understanding. You share Christ's faith, you get a full understanding of who he is. The, 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 the Greek that's translated full understanding, it's one word. It's the word epigonosko. It's the most intimate word for knowledge in the Bible. It's often taught, uh, used to speak of the carnal knowledge between a husband and wife. But there's an intimacy with God you cannot know until you are in the stream of his mission for the world. And you begin to feel his presence and his work in your life. Um, I said I wasn't a person with the gift of evangelism. It's absolutely true. But here are some of the things I've learned. If I do his work, I have a richer understanding of him. Just quick, few quick uh, observations. One, when I became a Christian, um, I was so moved. I knew my life was messed up. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I was pretty wild. I, I, I didn't get involved in sexual things because I had a girlfriend who broke my heart when I was a sophomore in high school. She dumped me for an older guy who just ripped her off and took horrible advantage of her. And I just thought to myself, it is wrong when men do this with women. I don't want you to think I was a paragon of virtue though. I was a violent person. I was in fights all the time. I carried a gun to school. It was a horrible thing. My mom actually found the gun loaded between my bed. Uh, it looked like a starter pistol for track. I used to compete in track, so she thought that's what it was. She's looking at this thing, and she pulls the trigger and blows a hole through my mattress. And, 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 and uh, she calls me up. I'm at a friend's house. She's weeping. She finds out some other things that were going on in my life that were inappropriate. I'd been raised in a church where I was told if I lived a holy life but had one bad thought the last second of my life, I'd just go to hell. And I was always in trouble, so I thought, okay, I'm not going to go to heaven. And if it depended upon me, if I could lose it based on what I did, I had to gain it based on what I did. And I just was cooked. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have a good time for this brief little window of time. And I was miserable. I was totally miserable. I saw in my mother's tears while she's talking to me about this gun, telling me she thinks I'm going to go to prison. By the way, when she's through talking to me, she gave me back the gun. Would you give the gun back to your 17-year-old son? She was really knocked off balance. I knew I was messed up. I didn't think there was anything that could be done about it because I knew by my own strength I couldn't fix it. I go to college just in existential despair trying to live a life that would make me happy in this world, even though I knew it was hell-bound, knowing I couldn't live a life that would make me, uh, by works, appropriate for heaven, 
And my older brother, who's a Christian, took me to, to a Christian gathering on my campus, and I heard the gospel. And the first time I ever heard it clear that God loved me, that God forgave me, that God wanted to enter into my life and bring order to chaos, I was like a duck to water. I was so happy about that. But I started sharing my faith, and here's one way I grew. When I started sharing my faith, people started asking me questions. I had no clue about the answer to these questions. I've written a book on the problem of evil, if God's good and all-powerful. Why is there evil in existence? I had never once asked that question when I was younger. I never heard it asked until I started sharing the gospel, and my friends were concerned about that and asked me. If, you, if you're afraid of questions, then don't share. But if you don't share, you won't grow. And instead, I wasn't afraid of the questions. I said to this guy, that is a great question. Wow, I have no clue. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm going to go dig around, and when I find out, I'll get back to you. And he said, okay, it wasn't a conversation starter, stopper. And so I dug around and I found out some answers. And in many cases, when I start digging for these answers, for questions like, how come Christians say theirs is the only way? What about other religions? How do you know the Bible's really the word of God? You've heard them all. And, 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 and I, I, I would say to them, I'll get back to you. And I would get back. And as I had dug for the answers to these questions, I started growing. I said, wow, this Christian thing is way more interesting than I first imagined. I really like the forgiveness stuff. I really like the love of God stuff and the Lordship stuff. That's enough to hold me, but it's even more. There's frosting on this cake. And I grew. I also grew not to be afraid of questions. I grew not to be afraid of doubts. Matter of fact, if you don't have any doubts about your faith, you're delusional. Because you think you've achieved omniscience. None of us knows it all. I'm in my 47th read through this book. I've read the New Testament 31 times besides that. Every time I read it, I see something and I go, where was that last time I read? Even this morning, I'm reading in Ezra and, and I saw some stuff I had never noticed before. And, 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 and not only that, every time I read it, I see some conundrum I don't get. Do you have that happen? And what do you do? I've talked with people that said, oh, I saw questions in there. I just put it aside. It's a goofy book. And I go, man, I don't think you've gone far enough. Because I put those questions aside in a little pending tray like a scientist might do. And then I wait. And a year or two later, all of a sudden, the answer is clear. I see exactly what's going on. And I just keep growing because I learn not to be afraid of questions. I learn not to be afraid of questions by sharing my faith. Second, I'm going to grow because people are going to scrutinize my life. Socrates said the unexamined life's not worth living. If you don't examine your own life, guess what? Everybody around you will feel it's their responsibility to do it for you. I knew a man once who told me I would never put a Christian bumper sticker on my car. If I did, I'd have to drive better. You share your faith, it's like putting a Christian bumper sticker across your life. People want to know, is it the real deal? And they'll point it out if it's not. What do you do if they do? Or how many of you have talked with people about Jesus and they're not interested because they saw some Christian who was hypocritical? Have you seen that before? Or even heard the question about hypocrites in the church? I, I look at these people, I'm not afraid to say, no, I know there's hypocrites in the church. I, I know because I'm one. I see incongruity in my life. I believe in the high ideal of love, but there have been times I've had sharp words with people I love most. Matter of fact, do you know anybody who hasn't had that kind of incongruity? 
And, 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 and usually the person, if you respond honestly, they'll respond in kind. But sometimes what I've found is I can say to a person too who's been burned by a Christian, you know, I'm a Christian. Would you let me stand as a surrogate in the place of that person who hurt you and ask for your forgiveness? And the reason why I want to do this is I wouldn't want anything to keep you from seeing how deeply you're loved by God. And sometimes that sets it aside and we can get back onto the real meat of the issue, which is how much they're loved, how great is his forgiveness, and how wonderful is it to have him enter into our lives to start to bring order out of chaos. These things are wonderful. So people ask questions, you'll grow. People scrutinize your life, you'll grow. And also, you'll get to know God in his workplace. You can know God for years in church, but you're never going to get to know him as deeply as you might until you get to know him in his workplace. We don't have to take Jesus to anybody. He's already there more deeply in love with every person you ever meet than you ever imagined. He wanted them here too. They matter to him. And when you go and work in his workplace and you see, you begin to connect with people who he's, his hearts he's already, whose, whose hearts he's already provide, uh, prepared. So in John chapter four, Jesus provides just one of many examples of how this work could be done. Um, I, I think we begin with prayer. I know when Jesus called his disciples, he was up all night in prayer. I, I, I read that and I go, wow, that sounds like a pretty wearying thing. It's hard for me to imagine. I get my mind. Have any of you ever spent an all-night thing in prayer before? I remember going one time to a youth group uh, when I was a college pastor, and, and they were going to do an all-night prayer thing. I'm just, you know, need toothpicks for your eyelids to keep them open. What if for Jesus, the all-night prayer was the exciting thing? He was so in love with the Father that it was not high cost. The high cost to him was being with these goofy people that he had to serve. Oh, you men of little faith, you know, how long do I have to work with you? I can't wait to get along with God in prayer and have my soul refreshed and so on. But I think we begin with prayer. I think we can say, you know what, Lord? Um, I'm willing to serve you. Open my eyes to see the people in my world whose hearts you've already prepared. I know I don't have to bring you to them. Help me to make explicit what you might be doing implicitly in their heart. And then watch and listen for the places where God is at work. Again, we don't take him to anybody. I think there are different types of contact when you uh, come in contact with a person. Here's a place where Jesus, a woman comes to get water, he's weary, he's sitting there, and he just approaches her. And she's surprised, right, that a Samaritan man, I mean, excuse me, a Jewish man talks to her, a Samaritan woman. Uh, there, a lot of times in that day, men didn't even talk to women at all in public. Made the women feel like dirt. You know, how horrible was that? that they wouldn't talk with them in public. Remember, there was a group of Pharisees called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Anytime they saw a woman in public, they'd close their eyes and they're banging into walls and posts and trees and stuff like that. It's pretty goofy. But then the Samaritans and the Jews didn't have good relations either. And so here's Jesus who crosses gender lines, crosses ethnic lines, and initiates. That's always interesting for us. Sometimes it's good to initiate in these evangelistic endeavors. And he says, could you give me a drink? Which also means he started with what was there. You see a movie with a friend? Begin there. Talk about the film. See if that doesn't open things up. How many movies are, are, are about some sort of miscommunication that either leads to deep pain or deep humor. 
You look at the plays of Shakespeare, almost all the plays of Shakespeare start with a moment of confusion, misunderstanding. In the comedies, they all end with laughter at their own expense. In the tragedies, they all end with stages strewn with dead bodies. We have all this misunderstanding in our culture. You, you look at plays, you look at literature, and it shows this human stuff that's just goofy and messy. And that's the world that the incarnate Christ comes to. And that's the world we're going to go to. And so you've got different types of contacts. You can use what's going on, music, uh, lyrics that touch you, lyrics that the other person enjoys. Find out why. It's usually about deep stuff where the lyrics touch us. And begin the conversation with what's there. It's like Jesus starting with water and thirst and common things. I think there are different types of contact you can have. One I like to call marketplace contact, where you actually go out to talk to people. I think Jesus was intentional with this woman. I think the disciples went into town to get water. He knew he had an appointment there. Paul in Acts 17 goes into the marketplace in Athens. I've seen it. I've seen the very place where he was just walking around talking to people about Jesus. I think that's a way to do it. It's not the only way. It's a way. I know that there are people out there that want to know because Jesus said the fields were white into harvest. He said the problem is there aren't enough people willing to talk. So I like to go and pray, Lord, I'm coming out here. I'm willing to talk. Lead me to the ones you want me to talk with. And, and it's interesting. Um, I go down to Ogilvy Transportation Center probably once a month with Wheaton students. And I'll maybe just, I, I just walk up to people and say, you know, we're here talking to people about Jesus. Do you mind if we talk with you? 60% of the people say, yeah. 60%. They say, no, we just move on. Because yeah. we pray, the Lord, lead us to ones who want to know. Almost every time I go out, we lead somebody to Jesus. It's not very hard. People want to talk about stuff like this. It's fascinating to me. I walked up to this one guy one time. This was just uh, last September, this one. Um, and I said, you know, we're here talking to people about Jesus. Do you mind if we talk with you? And he says, I'm Jewish. I don't want you to talk with me. I'm Jewish. I said, that's how Jesus started out. <laughs> and he started laughing. So I guess it was okay where it could be humorous and so on. I said, what's your name? He said, Daniel. I said, wow, Daniel's a great name. It means who is like God. He said, listen, you're not going to get through to me. Besides, this is our high holy day today. I said, which one? He said, Rosh Hashanah. Day of Atonement. I said, wow, have your sins been atoned for? He says, you can't know that. I said, yeah, you can. That's why Jesus came. And before you know it, we were in this conversation. It was amazing. He says, you won't change me. I was raised Orthodox Jew. I said, really? Well, if this is Rosh Hashanah, your high and holy day, how come you're not in the temple now? I said, you're not quite Orthodox anymore, are you? And he said, no. And I said, well, if you changed once, maybe you could change some more. Let's talk. <laughs> And we had about a 20-minute conversation, and you know, it was interesting, he was a playwright. And we talked, I said, tell me about your plays. And they were all this stuff of human struggle, human misunderstanding, incongruities in relationship. And every one of his plays was a jumping-off place for the gospel. He began with there. If it's not water, what is it? And then, not only that, at the end, finally he had to catch a train after 20 minutes. We had a good conversation. I said, what's your middle name, Daniel? Because Daniel means, God is my judge. He said, well, my middle name is Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus' name. I said, do you know what that means? He said, no, what? I said, Jehovah is salvation. Your name is the gospel. It says, God is my judge, but Jesus is my salvation. I said, so you go and remember your name 
Anyway, it was kind of fun. And then another, another one, there was a Wheaton student, and the Wheaton student who shared an all-school communion I was speaking at just a couple weeks ago. And, and he got up and said, I like going out sharing my faith, but I've never led anybody to Jesus before. And I said to him, Jonathan, you come with me next time. So it was about a week and a half ago, I think. We, we were out, and, and we talked with different ones. Some didn't want to talk with us. Some did talk with us. Finally, we came to this woman, Ariana. She was so hungry, just sitting there. How many Christians walked by her and so on? So hungry. We talked with her. I go through the whole gospel presentation. I say, is there, is, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? She said, none. None. And I said, Jonathan, why don't you lead her to Christ right now? And I got to watch uh, a man perform his first work in obstetrics. She was born again right before him. And he goes, I can do this. I can do this. He was getting it. Okay, so you can have marketplace contact. You go out and you're actually just going out to share Jesus with people. Uh, most people probably don't do that, but you can do it. It's not so hard, but nevertheless, that would be the approach. Once they say, yeah, I'll talk with you, say, tell me about your, your, your spiritual life. Are you a spiritual person? And then just go from there. Listen to their story, and finally they, they'll ask you, most often they'll ask you, what is it for you? If not, you can just say, after they've talked and you've listened to them well, you can say, here it is for me, and you explain. Next one is circumstance, where your lives are thrown together, just by circumstance. How do you make the most of that? Um, it could be something on an airplane. I was reading a, a paper at a theology conference not long ago, down in San Antonio, Texas. I get on the plane, I'm sitting by the window, a minute later a guy comes in, he sits right next to me. He says, rats, I have a middle seat. If I would have been a deeply spiritual person, I would have said, well, would you like mine? I'll trade with you. I didn't do that, though, unfortunately. Um, but he sat there, and he said that, and just after that, a guy sits on the aisle, and, and he says, Professor Root. I go, you got the drop on me. I'm so sorry. I don't know you. He says, I was at the paper you read at the theology conference. So he and I start talking some theology, and I got this guy in the middle seat. I said, what's your name? He said, Sean. I said, Sean, please, we don't mean to be rude. We were just at a theology conference. Please feel free to be a part of this conversation. <laughs> and so we're talking, and finally I turned to Sean. I said, Sean, are you a spiritual person? He said, yes, I am. I said, tell me about that. He said, I went and studied with a shaman in Peru one time. You go, oh boy, don't go there. No, it may mean that there's real spiritual hunger. Play it out. I said, tell me about that. Sean said, I saw that I could do this. I saved up a bunch of money. I used my entire vacation time. And I went down and met with a shaman in Peru for three weeks. I said, how'd that go, Sean? He said, it was the worst money I ever spent in my life. He said, what's in it for you, Jerry? And I told him, the thing that blows my mind is that the God of the universe loves us. We all long to be loved unconditionally. Human love is great as far as it goes. But my guess is none of us have ever been loved perfectly by another human being. The reason why I wonder about that is because I don't think I've ever loved another human being perfectly. We, we get incrementally better at it, hopefully, if we're learning from our mistakes and so on. And I said, I'm overwhelmed that the God of the universe knows me and loves me unconditionally. And I'm overwhelmed by his forgiveness. I don't know a human who's lived a moment of honest life who's unaware that they're screwed up. And here's the God of the universe. He says, I not only love you, I forgive you. And then when he offers to enter into our life to help bring order out of the chaos, if we've acknowledged we're screwed up, we know we need some ordering. 
And he's willing to do that. Sean says, that is the most comforting thing I have ever heard in my life. I said, Sean, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, none. And he prayed out loud with me on the plane. He's looking at the luggage thing that maybe Jesus was up there or something like that. But he, he prays out loud with me on the plane to receive Christ. The guy on the aisle, he's working on his doctorate at Trinity Seminary in apologetics. He's worth, used to building scaffolding to defend the faith, but I don't think he was worth, you know, he was used to seeing obstetrics right there. And he turned to Sean and loved on him the rest of the flight back and started following him up. Isn't that cool? It's just cool. There's all these things where we're thrown together. You know, you, you can, I, I was on a limo. I, I don't arrange who's going to drive the limo, but we're thrown together in circumstance. And this guy picks me up at O'Hare to take me back to Wheaton College. He says, yeah, I'm taking you to Wheaton College. What do you do there? I'm a professor, I said. Uh, what do you teach? I said, well, my degree's in philosophy of religion. He said, what religion are you? I said, I'm a Christian. How about you, Hafiz? Hafiz Muhammad. How about you, Hafiz? He says, I'm a Muslim. And then he says to me, what's the difference between Christianity and Islam? I said, Hafiz, I will defer to you in matters of Islam. I've only read about half of the Quran. I haven't read the whole thing, but I know my Bible fairly well. And I said, um, I'll tell you these things. Number one, no Christian believes that God came down and cohabited with a woman, and that's where Jesus came from. Academic Muslims don't believe that. But in the popular level among Muslims, they think that that's what we as Christians believe. So remove that from the table, because they think we're a bunch of wackos. So I said, none believe it. Really? None of you believe it? I said, I don't know one. I said, but here's a big difference between Christianity and Islam. In the Quran, Surah 3, Surah 6, it both, they both say that you, you do not believe in a God of Trinity. I said, and the Trinity is very important to us as Christians. He said, well, how does that work? I said, well, one, do you believe God's a contingent being or a non-contingent being? And they usually will say, I've had this conversation with a couple hundred Muslims. They usually say, what do you mean by contingent? And I said, well, uh, contingent would mean that it, it had some cause. You could look at a table and you could say it's contingent on the fact that there was a tree that could be cut down, that could be made from, there was a carpenter who could make it, and so on. And he says, oh, I think God's non-contingent. Nobody caused him. And he has no needs apart from himself. And I said, okay, then let me ask you this. Do you believe God's a God of love? You'd think maybe a Muslim would say, I believe he's good. I believe he's just. I believe he's merciful. But they've all said to me, yeah, I believe he's a God of love. I say, who's the object of his love? Their theology reduces them to say, we are the objects of his love. I say, if God needs us to fulfill his nature, then God is a contingent being and not a non-contingent self-existent being. Relational attributes, I said to him, and a non-contingent being presuppose that relationship must be necessary in that being. He goes, I'm tracking with you. He got it. There was this moment of disequilibrium where his present conceptual framework wasn't sufficient enough to deal with the data. I said, Hafiz, here's why this is important to us. We Christians believe at the core of the universe is a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that this God loves and loves non-contingently. He loves. Now, He makes us. That's true. He doesn't need us, but He makes us. And He loves us. Hafiz goes, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. And I said, not only that, His love is so great. When we're so messed up, 
He forgives us so that we could be reconciled to him and have relationship with him. And I went into some further explanation about that. And he kept saying, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. And finally he says, this is something so comforting. He says, I believe in the afterlife. I believe in hell. And I don't want to go there. And I'm doing all I can to keep from going there. I said, Hafiz, do you believe God's a perfect being? He said, yes. I said, how's your effort? How are your efforts working? He says, I live in fear. And I said, you don't have to be afraid because the Bible says, this God who loves you, his perfect love casts out fear. I said, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, none. And Hafiz prays out loud with me while he's driving the car uh, to Wheaton College. And we were able to do some follow-up with him, get him some, I said, can I get you a Bible? He says, I need it on, on CD because I'm in the car all the time. I was able to take it to his place and get him in the Word and that sort of thing. The, 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 thing, the thing I'm trying to say, it doesn't always go well. If you, if you don't want to strike out, don't play baseball. But if you never play baseball, you'll never know the joy of hitting a home run. The other thing, too, is if you feel the prompt to talk to somebody, talk to them. If you make some mistakes, learn from them. Apologize if you make a mistake. I mean, my word. Some people, they think, well, if I make a mistake in evangelism, I just shouldn't do it at all. You're not going to keep employed that way with that attitude. How many of you have never made a mistake at work in your life? No, you learn from it. You grow. And you learn from this, too. It's just like any other area of life. How many of you have never made a mistake if you're a parent, as a parent? How many of you as a child has never made a mistake as a child? You know, I mean, we would just be given up on life altogether. We don't do it in any other area. Why do we think we can take a pass in evangelism? People want to know they're loved by God. You have the good news. You get to tell them. It shouldn't be done out of guilt. It should be done with a heart full of the God who loves us in this way. It's really remarkable. And then, and then I, ha I have to tell you another quick story about these, these just being thrown together. This, this is what I call um, circumstance evangelism. The next week I had another limo driver after Hafiz came to faith. His name was Razi. He was a Muslim. And I'm thinking, okay, it worked perfect over here. It's going to work perfect here. It doesn't always go that way. I start talking to Razi and Razi says, Jesus is not God. The prophet has said the prophet Muhammad has said, Jesus is not God. I said, Razi, I could take you and show you a copy of the Bible that was written out in hand 400 years before your Quran was even written. I can take you to it. It's on display at the British Library in London. You can see it right there, the Codex Sinaiticus. And in that, Jesus says he's God before Muhammad was ever even born. He says, the prophet said he's not God. I said, the prophet also said you're supposed to read the Injil. Yeah. Have you read it? He said, no. I said, well, then don't be too adamant about what the prophet says when you're not obeying him. You haven't even read the Injil, the Injil of the four Gospels. I said, you know what, Rob, Razi? I just happen to have a copy of a quarter of the Injil with me. Would you like it? Yeah, I think I, think I would. I should read it. And I said, yeah, here it is. I gave him the Gospel of John. And I said, you'll see in that book that the prophet told you to read, Jesus says he's God. And he just left sort of scratching his head. You know, it doesn't always go perfect, but you, you make some movement. The last one is friendship evangelism. Friendship evangelism. 
Um, I know a lot of people say, I don't like contact evangelism, and I'm, I'm not so keen on circumstance evangelism where my lives are thrown together. I, I like friendship evangelism. I said, oh, that's great. That's great. How's it going? And it's, it's sort of like uh, D.L. Moody was once told by some guy, I don't like your method of evangelism. And Moody, who was honest about things, said, yeah, I know. I'm trying to learn and do better. And I, I know there's some things I could, you know, fix a little bit here and there. He's, and Moody then said to the man, what's your method of evangelism? He was taken back by that. He said, well, I don't have one. And Moody says, well, I like my method a lot better than yours. <laughs> You know, and so a lot of people, they'll say to me, I'm for friendship evangelism. I say, well, how's it going with your friends? And a lot of times we don't talk to our friends about Jesus. Why? They know too much about us. They know the incongruities in our life and the inconsistencies. They also know if we start to bring up the subject now, how come we haven't brought it up before? And it's funny with our friends. We can know which team they're for in the Super Bowl today. We can know what they do for work, what their kids, where their kids are, where their kids' names are. We can know their hobbies and their interests. But we don't talk to them about spiritual things. Why is that? Campus Crusade for Christ, they go by crew now. But have, have, you know that group? Mm -hmm. Okay, so they, they go by crew, but everybody says crew or Campus Crusade for Christ. They still keep saying the old name, but nevertheless. They have a thing that they do to encourage people into friendship evangelism. To just say to a friend, you know, I've known you for years. I know all about you. I know the teams you like. I know the foods you like. I know the movies you like. I know the actors and actresses and the music you like. I have never talked with you about your spiritual story. I am embarrassed. I think we are more than just material beings. We have souls. Do you think sometime I could just sit down and hear your story about your own spiritual life? Cruz says that 98% of people will say yes. Well, say yes. Next time you see them, have small talk. Well, not a great Super Bowl. Didn't you love those commercials? Next time you see them, you say, remember when we said sometime we'd talk about this? Do you think we could go to breakfast on, on uh, next Saturday morning? And I just want to hear your story. And when they share their story, what usually happens afterwards? We share yours. Yeah, tell me your story. And not only that, when you tell your story, you know exactly where the touch points are in their story, where you could segue the gospel to the place of felt need. Is this fun or what? And, and it's easy to do. Just ask people questions. Start with public questions. What's your name? It's a public question. If you're in Chicago, are you from Chicago? It's a public question. They're in Chicago. I talked to a guy in Chicago one time. I said, what's your name? He said, Peter. I said, Peter, are you from Chicago? He said, no, I grew up in Albuquerque, but when my parents got divorced, I moved to Chicago with my, with my mother. He didn't have to give me that information, but you're listening. And with the listening in the answers come the liberty to ask deeper questions about the material they gave you. It's not offensive. It's not intrusive. They, they opened the topic. And I got to the place with Peter where I found out that his dad had abandoned the family. It didn't keep up and remember his birthdays or Christmases. Just sad. And it wasn't that he was so upset at his father, he wasn't liking what the bitterness was doing to him, how corrosive it was. And I know he wants to have the power to forgive. And that's where the conversation went when we talked about God's forgiveness and how he gives us the power to forgive others. And, and I, I think there's more we could say, but I don't want to belabor the thing, except just, just 
say to you, you are uniquely wired, uniquely made. You're put in context that nobody else is in. Two times in my life I had men come up to me and say, Jerry, you gotta pray for me. I'm the only Christian at my work and I'm miserable. And I said, okay. Both times I put my hand on the man's shoulder and I said, Lord, look how miserable my friend is here. Please take him home to heaven now. Please, before this stays over, take him home to heaven. In both cases, they knocked my hand off their shoulder and said, what are you praying? I said, well, there's two ways you can look at it. You're the only Christian at your place of work. You can be miserable or you can say, I'm really strategically placed. I'm the only beachhead God has at this place. You can begin to pray, Lord, open my eyes. Why did you put me here? Imagine Philip on the Gaza Road. He'd just been in the big revival in Samaria. You can read about it in the book of Acts. God whisks him out of there and he's on the Gaza Road that says it was a desert road. And Philip could have said, you know what, Lord, I don't get it. I said, that big revival in Samaria and you brought me out here to the desert road. There's nothing going on here except that Ethiopian eunuch going by on his chariot reading from the book of Isaiah. But what could that be all about? There's stuff like that going on all around us. Open our eyes. Open our eyes and see the unique place God has placed you. The unique gifts he's given you. And it is a lot of fun. Have fun seeing people come to Christ and nurtured. Let's pray. Father, I worship you for the privilege of each person in this room. I worship you for the uniqueness of each person in this room. And that not one of them are the same. It shows us the variety of your ministry and your missional work in the world. I pray that you give each person in this room the joy of sensing your hardwiring of them and that they would make the most then of that hardwiring in the place where you put them. I pray that they would be sensitive to the work of your Holy Spirit in their world. And I pray, Father, that they would see fruit for their labor as they make the most of these opportunities. Learning from each one. If they make mistakes, help, help them to just go back and ask forgiveness of the person they made a mistake with. But don't let that be a conversation stopper for them. Help them to be able to say, please forgive me. I, I, I think maybe I, I was confusing or I was maybe a little too aggressive. I would never want to do something that would keep you from seeing how deeply you're loved by God. Give them that kind of courage, Father. Give them that kind of clarity. And I pray, Father, that every person in this room would over this next year see at least one person come to Christ. And I thank you for it, for Christ's sake. Amen.